Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. These are the words of God. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, your word says that the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. And so we ask now that you would illuminate us, fill us with the light of your word and the oil of your Holy Spirit. For we ask this in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. Well, Happy New Year, and welcome to the year of our Lord's reign, 2023. Uh, Roughly 2,000 years ago, the Christian church was just 120 people in an upper room. And today, Christianity is the dominant religion of our planet. There are about 2.2 billion people who identify themselves as Christians. That's about a third of the world population. After Christianity, there are about 1.6 billion Muslims, 1 billion Hindus, and about 500 million Buddhists, and then kind of a bunch of other smaller religious groups after that. So Christianity is the number one world religion by a lot. It is far and away the religion of our planet, and it is also the number one religion of our nation, these United States. Um, Does anyone happen to know uh, roughly the percentage of Christians in America? Just guess, what percentage of people claim Christianity in the U.S.? 40%? 40%? Can I, can I get higher or lower? Uh, 80. 80. Oh, that's, pretty, that's pretty high. 75? And yeah, okay. Jeff was the closest. So 70%. Now, I have to say, this, this includes the small percentage that's like Muslims or uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, not Muslims. Uh, more, who, you know, they, they'll come to your door. They'll say, oh, yeah, we're Christians, but... We're not, but at least the, the, uh, the, the statistics that you find out there say there's about 70%, 7 in 10 Americans identify themselves as Christians. Uh, that means of the, the 331 million Americans, uh, 231 million claim Christianity. Um, is that surprising? It's, it's a little bit surprising, I think. Um, of that 70%, the majority is Protestant. So uh, we make up about 40% of the nation, 25% evangelical, and 14.7% mainline. And then after, after that, the rest is Roman Catholic, about 20%. So we are a majority Protestant, religious, evangelical 
uh, nation. Um, however, however, when you look at the laws, the morality, and the cultural trends in our nation, whether it's uh, the sexual perversion of our entertainment, abortion, LGBT stuff, woke stuff, uh, whatever policies are coming out of uh, the Capitol, um, I think it's reasonable to conclude that although seven in 10 Americans claim to be Christian, uh, many of them are either uh, nominal, uh, Christians in name only, they're either extremely confused or just outright disobedient. Uh, or to put it in more biblical terms, we would say that our nation is a, a Christian nation that is apostate. We are a nation of baptized and professing Christians who uh, don't really go to church, don't really read our Bibles or pray, and certainly do not obey all that Christ commands. Once upon a time in America, Protestant Christianity was the established religion. There were recognized state churches in the early colonies. If you wanted to be in civil government, you had to often swear an oath that you were a confessing Christian that believed the Bible. There was a time when the Lord's Day, Sunday, was a day of rest from commerce and business. Church attendance was expected and encouraged if you were just going to be a good American citizen. There was a time in America when school children were taught the Bible. They were taught the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and they learned their ABCs using stories from Scripture. Uh, for example, the, the New England Primer uh, of 1690 is one of the kind of the earliest uh, textbook for students. Uh, for, the edder, for the letter A, you would learn this rhyme, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's, that's your child learning the letter A. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. A was for the historical Adam, not Apple. And what do they teach children today? They teach them that they are the descendants of apes. For the letter J, you would say, Job feels the rod and blesses God. You would be learning theology as you learned your ABCs. For the letter K, you would learn proud Korah's troops were swallowed up. You would learn biblical history as you learned your ABCs. Uh, today, I reckon most Christians don't even know who Korah is. The very first book that was printed on American soil was a Psalter, the Bay Psalm Book, the book of Psalms for English speakers to sing. From the beginning, Christianity has been the dominant religious force of our nation. You cannot accurately tell the history of our country without getting into the details of Christianity. And with that has come great prosperity, great blessing, but also great curses and bloodshed for our apostasy. Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, For unto whomsoever much is given of him, much shall be required. To those who have been exposed to more light, to more gospel truth, the judgment is far greater when they turn away from it. And so what is the state of the church in America? What is the state of our nation in 2023? Well, we would say, uh, as the kids say, it's a hot mess. We are the bride of Christ, but there are still many spots and many wrinkles in the visible church. 
So what I want to do uh, this morning in this sermon is a little bit different than usual. Um, I've titled this message, The State of the Church 2023. And what I want to do is situate this church, our little congregation, within uh, the broader context and history of the church in America. Where do we as a body fit into the grand scheme of God's kingdom? Who are we in relation to everyone else? Um, In order to do this, I want to start by giving just a simple exposition of our text, always to the text first, and then spend uh, the rest of our time just making some applications uh, for us. Uh, I suspect this will be the longest sermon I've I've preached thus far, so uh, you've you've been warned. All right, so, so starting here, starting in verses 12 to 13, Paul says this, Wherefore, or therefore, depending on your translation, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure." So remember the context of where we are as we're working through this book. This is building off of all of that hard theology we did on Christmas Day. Okay, so the the deep weeds of the incarnation, Paul's building on that. And he's saying, because Christ, who is God, became man, therefore, my beloved, obey Christ, whether I am present or whether I am absent. This is essentially Paul telling the Philippians, uh, don't be that guy who only obeys when the manager is watching. Maybe you've worked, worked with these kinds of people before. They only look busy. They only look like they're working when someone who can punish them or fire them is watching. And Paul says, don't be that person. Don't be the kid who only obeys when mom and dad are in the room. Don't be a church that needs to be uh, micromanaged by the elders. That would not be good for you or, or for us. Obey Christ, obey God's word, and obey him in private, in public, when everyone's watching or when nobody is watching. Because God is always watching. Obey whether Paul is present or Absent, And as we'll see uh, probably next week, Paul is going to send uh, some, uh, some of his guys to go check on the Philippians. He'll send uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus to go make sure they're doing this. Now, what does this obedience look like? Well, it looks like working out, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is a very important Verse, if I, were, if I were to pick kind of one section of Philippians to memorize, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 are really important passages because they get at the mystery of how people change, the mystery of how God works in us. And it's about working out something that God is working in. Um, what does this mean? Because uh, some people come to this and they think, I thought salvation was opposed to works. How, how can Paul say, work out your own salvation? How's this work? Um, so li- little theology lesson here. Um, in scripture, salvation, when you come across this word, um, it's a much bigger category than what we Protestants call justification by faith, okay, or forensic justification. This is where God declares that you are righteous. Uh, so we want to say justification is essential to salvation, but that's not all that salvation entails. 
Salvation includes other essential concepts like regeneration, when you get born again, effectual calling, when God calls you to himself, sanctification, when God sets you apart, glorification, good works, perseverance, all of these other ideas are part of this concept, this word, salvation. And justification is just one part of that kind of whole enchilada that is salvation. This is how Jesus can say things like, he that endures to the end shall be saved. Implying that if you don't endure, you'll not be saved. Or Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. In other words, if you're not faithful, you will not get the crown of life. In this sense, we can speak of salvation as conditioned upon something that you do. Or uh, consider the final judgment, the picture of final judgment that we have in Matthew 25. What is it based on? It is based not upon whether someone simply believed in Jesus or not, but upon whether a nation did good works or not. The king says this, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hungered and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and ye took me in, naked and ye clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Those are the criteria by which the righteous are distinguished from the wicked. This is the dividing line between sheep and goats. God is going to judge the world and every man according to his works. So, it is proper to say that we are declared righteous by faith apart from works. We're saved by grace through faith alone, Ephesians 2.8. And at the same time, we can say that, God, that good works are necessary and essential to salvation. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. If God ordained your justification, he ordained works for you to do as well. So this is important. In scripture, there, there's not either or. If you're arguing with people in the street or on the internet, it's almost always someone is saying, it's either this or that. These are mutually exclusive. When that's not the case, it's, it's always both and. All, all of scripture is true all the time. Everything harmonizes. So this is what Paul is getting at when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And if your response to Paul is, I don't need to work because I'm justified by faith, Paul would say, uh, go back, try again. Uh, you're misunderstanding what salvation is. Salvation is from beginning to end a work of God. It is a work in which God causes you to be born again. He graciously implants faith and righteousness in you. And then you work out by faith what God has worked in. Remember the whole context and theme of these verses. Paul is wanting the Philippians to be humble, to be like-minded. And the way that he cuts down our pride is by attributing to God all the good works that you and I could ever do. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored, I worked harder than all of them. He's talking about the apostles. Paul saying, I am the hardest working apostle that there ever was. And then he goes on to say, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. I worked. I worked harder than Peter and John. I mean, look at, we have a lot more letters from Paul than any of the other apostles, right? He, he worked harder than all of them. That's true. And he says, yet it wasn't me. It was God, which was with me. So can we say that? Can you say that? Can you say, I worked really hard this year. I worked out my salvation with fear and trembling, and yet not I, it was the grace of God within me. If you walk with Christ for long enough, you will know exactly what Paul is talking about. How did you stop looking at pornography? How did you stop nagging your husband and instead started to respect and honor him? Well, It was a lot of hard work that you did, and yet not you. It was the grace of God within you. This is the same idea that we saw earlier when Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is to have the spirit of Christ animating your whole life. All of your good works, all of your obedience, Christ gets the the glory for all of that. And this should characterize our whole life. We start by grace, we work by grace, and we finish the race by grace. Next, in, the, in verses 14 and 15, Paul gives us some uh, practical examples of what working out your salvation looks like. He says this, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Of all the things that Paul could have said about good works and salvation, he chooses to say, don't complain. The great sign that Christ is working in you is that you do not complain. We don't grumble when things get hard. Instead, what do we do? We give thanks. We rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, as he will say in chapter 4. We count it all joy when we fall into various trials, James 1, 2. If you try to do that, you will find it is really hard work. Being thankful is a workout. Your flesh doesn't like that. But it is this choice to be thankful instead of grumbling and complaining that Paul says makes us to stand out. We shine as lights in the world. So if we want to be a witness to Lewis County, to this region this year, if we want to be a city that is set upon a hill for all to see, all we have to do is stop complaining and arguing. If we do this, we'll stand out because that's what everyone else does. There's nothing more natural to fallen sinful men than to play the victim, to feel bad for ourselves to blame other people for our problems. This was Adam and Eve in the garden, fingers pointed everywhere, and this is the default posture of our sinful nature. But is this what Christ did? No. And it's not what true Christians do. Christ 
took responsibility for things he did not do. Christ owned the sins of the world so that you and I could be forgiven. This is the gospel. And if Christ has done this for us, then how can we go on grumbling and complaining and blaming other people? This was the sin of the Israelites after God miraculously brought them out of Egypt. They grumbled and they complained because they didn't like the menu. Miracle bread from heaven, sick of it. Miracle birds, probably tasted like chicken. We'd rather have leeks and onions in, and be slaves in Egypt. Ingratitude in scripture is the first step towards apostasy. Why is our nation apostate? Well, we are exceedingly blessed and exceedingly ungrateful. Romans 1 says that ingratitude is where homosexuality and lesbianism comes from. He says, because they were not thankful, God gave them up unto vile affections. Why do we have this big gay problem in our nation? Well, it starts with, we have refused to give thanks. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 10, don't murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Because those things happened to them as an example for us, and they were written down for our admonition. Paul wants us to learn from the Hebrews. He wants us to learn from the Israelites. And what is the state of the church in 2023? Do Americans ever complain? Do American Christians ever complain? Do we ever murmur and get into stupid arguments? We do. And God hates that. God hates our ingratitude. So work out your salvation this year by giving thanks. This will be how we shine as lights in our region. Finally, in verses uh, 16 to 18, Paul tells us how we can conquer that grumbling spirit within us. So he says in verse 16, you shine as lights in the world as you are holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. What causes Christians to shine is the light of Christ within them. And the way that Christ gets inside of us is by us holding forth the word. Psalm 119 says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus says in John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so the only way to shine, the only way to conquer grumbling with gratitude is by taking hold of God's word. And when God's word gets inside of you, you will glow like stars in the heaven. The word glorifies us. You finish your Bible reading, you get up off your knees from praying, and you come down like Moses with your face shining. Right? That, that, that happens to you guys, right? All right? This is what we want. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we behold Christ not like 
Moses with a veil but unveiled and are transformed into one, from one degree of glory to another. This is what happens when we take hold of the word. Remember back in uh, Genesis 15 when God told Abraham to number the stars? He says, go outside, look, look at the stars. What did Abraham see when he looked up? The Bible says that he saw you. God said to him, so shall thy seed be. And Galatians 3.29 says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Christians are stars. Ye shine, Paul says, as lights, as stars in the world. This is a fulfillment of Daniel 2.3, which says, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. What do stars do in the Bible? Genesis 1.14 says, Stars govern the world. Stars are rulers. It says, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days, for years. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Genesis 1. The old world, the old creation was governed by angels. But the new creation of which we are a part is governed by the saints who rule with Christ. Ephesians says we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so if we would shine as lights in the world, if we are going to judge angels, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, then we need the entirety of Holy Scripture within us. We must become one with the Word. This is what it means to take hold of the Word of life, to possess it until it possesses you. If the Philippians do this, Paul says, I'm going to rejoice. He will rejoice that his labor among them has not been in vain, even if he is poured out as a drink offering upon their sacrifice. That's to say, even if he dies. All right, that's our text. Work hard by grace. Don't complain. Read your Bible. Shine like a star. We could stop there. Uh, but I want to take a few extra moments to talk about uh, where our church is right now in kind of the, the the grand scheme of things, as we're going into this new year together. Uh, let me return to some statistics here. Um, of those 2.2 billion people on planet Earth who profess Christ, and of the 231 million Americans who profess Christ, we, this church, falls into the single, relig single largest religious category in America, which is evangelical Protestant. So this is a quarter of the nation right now, and we belong broadly to that group. Now, uh, within that category of evangelical Protestant, you could further subdivide by denomination. And so if you're wondering, what kind of church are we? What, what, do these, what, is, uh, our denom what is our denomination? I'm going to tell you all of that information right now. We are, as a church, theologically what you would call Presbyterian and Reformed. Uh, Presbyterian, referring to, referring to our form of church government, and Reformed, referring to our kind of theological outlook. 
Um, our denomination, which is just the name of, of us, is the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. You can hear in there, Reformed Evangelical, uh, that's us. Um, our denomination is only about 25 years old. So we, we were founded in uh, 1998. There are about 2.2 million Presbyterians in America, and our denomination accounts for only about 10,000 of those. Okay, so we are a very, very, very tiny uh, denomination within the broader world of Presbyterianism. There's only about 10,000 members within a CREC churches. Our church, what do we contribute to that? Our church averages about 100 and uh, to 120 people each week, depending on how many sick people there are. We've, been, we've experienced a lot of attrition from sickness the last few weeks. Um, and we currently, as a church, have 72 members. So we contribute 72 members to that 10,000 of the 2.2 million Presbyterians of the quarter of the nation that is evangelical Protestant. Okay, so this is kind of, you're on Google Maps, we're just zooming, zooming, zooming in. All right, uh, so in the grand scheme of Christ's kingdom, our church is just a percentage of a percentage numerically. We are what uh, they call in the financial world a rounding error, okay? <laughs> and that should, I think, uh, both humble us and inspire us. It should humble us because we are small. It also should inspire us because if God could turn 120 disciples into 3,000 and then 5,000 and then countless millions today... What could he do with our faithfulness many years from now? What kind of church and state will our great-grandchildren inherit? What kind of outlook? What, hard, what sacrifices are we going to make now for the grandchildren who won't really even remember us? <laughs> this is what it means to walk by faith. This is what it means to have the faith of Abraham, to be told you are going to be the father of Many, and yet have no son. And then to have to sacrifice your son. And never to actually get to settle in the promised land that God swore he was going to give you. Abraham is still waiting for the resurrection. But we are Abraham's seed. And we should have the faith that Abraham had. I want to uh, give us three things that uh, our church should aim for. These are kind of uh, distinctives would be one way to talk about this, but we might say these are three gifts that God uh, wants to give to our church. Three things for us to aim for this year. Number one, prioritize worship on the Lord's day over everything else. We want to prioritize this worship service over everything else that we do. Um, as I've talked to many people, especially in Washington, so I, I was in the, the, the Bible Belt for a time, people have a very different mindset about going to church. It's pretty normal even for unbelievers to just go to church. Uh, in Washington, that is not the case. Uh, and I, I find many Christians who actually don't think uh, going to church is that important. They, they consider it optional. I think the general order of importance for a lot of Christians in Washington is that they think the highest thing they do is their kind of personal, private, individual devotions, okay? And then after that maybe is like 
you know, reading your, going to a Bible study, and then Sunday service is kind of, you know, if I got time for it. It depends on what, if the Seahawks are playing or not. Um, what what um, is priority for uh, Washingtonians is, I think, the opposite of the way the Bible lays it out. If we think private individual devotions is the highest apex of our faith, um, we're doing it wrong. I am all for private individual devotions. You should not leave home without it if, if, you, if you can. But it is far more important to worship God with all the saints on the Lord's day. Because this is what God commands us to do. And God deserves it. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Do not forsake the assembly. Hebrews 10.25. Psalm 87.2 says this. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Think about that. What are the gates of Zion? It's it's the doorway to the church. And God, God loves the dwellings of Jacob, but he says he loves the gates, the entrance to the temple, the entrance to the place of worship more than anything else. So we should love it too. So for us, if you have to, you know, gun to your head, have to choose, the thing you should do more than all the other private individual devotions is be here to worship together to contribute as a member of the body, right? We, we want our whole body to be united and we need to be in the same place for that to happen. So make Sunday worship, uh, prioritize this gathering more than anything else you do. God deserves it and he is worthy of our praise. Second thing, prioritize family worship in your home. So make this the number one thing. And the number two thing should be worship, not you privately, but in your family. And I'm speaking especially to you who are heads of your household. God has assigned to you the task of bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Galatians 6, 4. And so fathers especially must lead here. If you don't know where to start, start in the shallow end with something short, simple, and consistent. And the emphasis here is on the consistency. It could be as simple as reading one proverb and then praying together as a family. That will take you like two minutes to do, okay? And uh, talk to the elders, talk to one another. There's lots of ways to do this, and you will need to adjust as your family kind of waxes and and wanes depending on what stage of life you are in. But but make it a non-negotiable that you together as a family, whether husband or wife or with the kids, are worshiping the Lord together. In the months ahead, uh, the elders and I will be visiting you. And one of the questions we will ask you is, how is family worship going? What what are you doing? Do you need help with this? We want every household in our church to be reading scripture together, praying together. And my last application for us, singing the Psalms together. So this is the third thing, last thing. We want to prioritize the singing of God's inspired Psalms. If you looked at the bulletin this morning, you might have noticed that we are singing almost completely psalms, almost every single song except the doxology, and I think the very last song is, is uh, uh, from Zechariah, or the Zechariah song. The psalms are God's inspired songbook for the church. 
When Paul says in Ephesians and Colossians to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he's not talking about singing psalms, Hillsong, Bethel, and Isaac Watts. Okay? Uh, because that would be anachronistic for one, but he is referring to the different kinds of psalms within the Psalter. So psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, these are actually headings in the Greek Psalter that Paul is referring to. And I could prove this because Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you say, okay, how? Then he says, teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs must be the word of Christ. That's what Colossians 3 says. So the songs that people write today are not the word of Christ. They are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we find in the Psalter are. They are superior to anything that man can write today. And Paul says we should have all 150 of those psalms dwelling in us richly so that we can teach and admonish one another by them. So that you're amongst Christians and it seems like a musical, right? <laughs> Everyone's just breaking out, speaking to one another in psalms. This is what our fellowship hour uh, time should look like. Um, so prioritize this uh, in your commute, in your devotions as a family, uh, wherever you are. Um, we're going to resource you with the tools to do this. And I promise you, of all the things that you could do, this will, uh, maybe more than all of them, radically change your life. Let me close with this. All of us are going to die. And this whole life is a preparation for judgment day. When you are laying on your deathbed, minutes away from seeing Christ face to face, what do you want to have stored up in your heart? When you go to bed tonight and close your eyes, you should think, I am closing my eyes in death. I'm about to see the Lord. You, maybe you'll wake up the next morning. Most days we do. But if you, think, if you practice that, right? why, why do we have to sleep? It's because we need death practice. Close your eyes tonight and think, I'm, I'm in the hospital and I'm going to see the Lord any minute. What, what, what do you want in your heart then? What do you want to have stored up in your heart? What was in Christ's heart when he was on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's Psalm 31. What did Jesus sing with his disciples right before his passion? It was almost undoubtedly Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, and he had the Psalter on his lips. What will you have in your heart when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as you most certainly will? As your pastor, I want you to have the word of Christ in your heart the psalms of our Lord treasured up to sing, because that's what Christ had in his. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this church, for these saints. We thank you for one another. We thank you for bringing us here, for calling us to live for you 
in this year of your reign, 2023. God, there are many things that we need to change, and we cannot do any of it unless you give us the grace to work it out. Make us to work hard this year, to provide for our families, to provide for our children, and to especially provide for our great-grandchildren, for posterity, to leave behind them a lineage and legacy of faith, just like Abraham did, just like Christ did for us. Give us the will to make those sacrifices, trusting you to raise it all from the dead. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen.